Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. So I'm going to, uh, Sharon's going to lead us in contemplating intentionality as the next step of building our love practice or metta practice. Um, but I just want to return to this idea, which is, you know, a theme from, it's a theme from Sharon's next book, but the, the sort of topic for this morning session is love is a verb. And I was really, just to uh, continue to draw this out, that I was really, and David's question brought this up, that um, we really often look at love as some kind of idealized state, as a feeling that we arrive at, that we search for. And pretty much everything we're doing along this path is reframing this as a process that can be applied. So what is the process of applying love to a situation? And I've really been trying to build this very simply and accessibly, right? So I've used one phrase that's a verb last night to hang out with yourself or make friends with yourself. And today I'm just using the phrase soften, right? Simple, simple things that are almost so simple that we forget to do them, you know, in the moment. And that's, that's the problem with overlooking simple instructions is you forget to actually apply it. And this path is really about what we apply moment by moment. It's the, it's the repetition of simplicity which leads to insight. So I just encourage you, because I've noticed, uh, I'm, you know, I figured out like why my creative form, although I like other creative forms quite a lot, was always writing, because I'm so interested in the way that language leads our experience. And I know that in, in this room, like even to, to use a word like soften, right? Everybody has a different experience of that word. Everybody has a different experience of what a rock means to them. Maybe a rock is your favorite object. <laughs> um, so I would just really encourage you to think about what is the, the word or the image that you could apply in your practice that has that same sense of befriending your own mind, just letting yourself be for a moment. Maybe soften works for you. Maybe um, hang out or make friends with yourself work. Does anyone else, have you been thinking of your own verb in the love as a verb as we've been talking? Does anybody want to throw, throw out verbs that might help? Please. Can just, we don't need, we can just do this popcorn. Oh. If it's just one or two words. I will repeat it, yeah. Well, of, of, dial open, okay. Drop down. Accept? Accept. Surrender. Carry? 
peaceful. How do you turn that into an action? Okay, remind oneself. Release. Release. Giving full attention. Giving full attention. Wake, up. Wake up. Okay, so it's 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 nice to use our own relationship to language, right? You find this as a, I think Sharon might find this too as a meditation teacher that, um, you try to use words as this is a tradition in translation, and it's a wisdom tradition, which means it's a tradition of embodied experience being passed on. And so you try to learn the words that resonate more or less with groups of people. But there is no word (laughs) that resonates in terms of this love as a verb with everyone. So we each need to kind of find our own word and notice how those words or images or reminders activate a certain action towards ourself. So I really encourage you to become your own Dharma Tesaurus. Okay? And I think that leads nicely into Thank intention. you. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, so maybe I'll start by saying that even though... Uh, the examples and the stories and the uh, imagery that I or we draw from, you know, seem to come from various Buddhist traditions, and there's a, a very beautiful big Buddha behind me. Um, this really doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism, per se. Um, this is about wisdom, which can be expressed in many, many, many different ways, uh, either based in a faith tradition or not. Uh, it's about human experience. It, it's about human potential, really. Um, I was always taught that the Buddha uh, was a human being and that he had some very profound questions about life and aloneness and happiness and freedom and suffering and that we have our own questions about those things. Otherwise, we don't tend to spend a weekend like here, you know, And that whatever answers or resolutions the Buddha came to, he came to through the power of his own awareness, and so can we. So we were taught, like, if you look at a Buddha statue, you're really looking at something about human potential for freedom, for uh, wisdom, for love, for compassion. And so we look at the Buddha and we really see ourselves in that form of the capacity, the potential. And... Uh, we look at ourselves on that level and we actually see all beings because it's not like, oh, it's the Buddha and me and we're great, you know, and everyone else is like a loser. But this is said to be our potential, our capacity, usually unrealized and covered over and all of that, but existing. And so it's very much like a transparency. We look at the Buddha to see ourselves. We look at ourselves to see all beings. So... um, And I say that because the next uh, context I'm going to speak in about intentionality comes right out of the Buddhist teaching. Um, So uh, in the Buddhist psychology, um, when we look at an action, something we do, something we say, something we refrain from saying or doing, because that's also an action, it's said to have different component parts. And this is something I talk about all the time because it's 
Um, it's actually very key to the teaching of loving kindness or the understanding of loving kindness. The first part of an action uh, is the intention or the motivation behind the action. So I might um, reach over and pick up this striker and hand it to one of you. And all anybody sees is my hand moving down, picking up an object and moving it forward. But the question within the context of Eastern psychology, let's say, or Buddhist psychology is, what's the heart space that is generating that movement? What's inspiring me to do that? Why am I doing this? You know, maybe I'm offering you the striker and the bell can come with it um, because I like you and I want you to have it. Or maybe I see you have this really interesting-looking water bottle, and I think, well, hey, maybe I'll give you the bell, and you'll give me the water bottle. Or maybe I don't like you, and I know it's a particularly difficult bell to ring and not get a really dreadful, clangy sound, and it's like, here, you know. So it's like, you know, the same smile, the same action on the surface, but coming from a totally different place inside. And we know this in terms of generosity in general, right? Like, And we look at material generosity, uh, loving kindness or love, you could say, is like generosity of the spirit. Uh, but we look at material generosity often as an example because it's so much more concrete and reveals a lot to us. We know we can give a gift from a lot of different motives. We can give somebody something and it's really a freely given gift. Like, may you enjoy it. It may have a lot of strings attached in contrast, like, thank me. Thank me louder. Give me that in return. Proclaim me the most generous person in the world. Tell me it's the best book you've ever gotten. Right? And that's a different kind of giving. In the West, we don't tend to look at intention or motivation in quite the same way. It's more like, in general, it's like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Or what do you mean you were coming from a good intention? You completely screwed up. Right? But in, in Buddhist psychology, the motive or the intention is a critical part of understanding an action because that's where the energy is held. That's where the karmic seed is planted. That's what distinguishes this action from this action, which looks totally identical on the surface. But could be completely different depending on what's motivating it. So the first thing we do is, in terms of practice, is uh, we also include motivation or intention in the field of mindfulness. What do we want? And sometimes on a... And there are lots of ways we can pick up the motivation. Sometimes it's a clear message in our heads. It's like a subtitle. You know, denounce them, whatever. Um... Show your right. You know, may they be happy. It's a different kind of motivation. Um, we use mindfulness to see where we're coming from, including that motivational element. Sometimes it's not so much like words in our head. You can just feel this like uh, quickening in your body. You feel it more in your body. It's, it's a clue. You know, like if you... I have a friend who said... Uh, she always had a very difficult time saying no. 
and would find yourself in all these kind of bad situations, like overwhelmed and doing too much. So in her meditation, uh, she began to purposely bring up those kinds of scenarios where she could, she was asked something, and then she was checking in with her body, like what happens? And she, she came to identify a kind of a particular sensation, a sort of panic. She was going to put a word on it. And that became her feedback system so that when she was at work or she was somewhere and she was asked that very kind of question and she'd feel that thing coming up, she realized she was coming from a bad motive. And that was her clue. To The way she put it was she, she couldn't bring herself to say no quite, but she would say, oh, let me get back to you on that. And then when she had more time, she could come back and say no. So sometimes we see the intention really more viscerally. And sometimes we do see it as words in the mind. Um, but it's really helpful. And uh, on a certain level, like if I go into an organization or a company and teach, one of the things we suggest is like before a major meeting, before a big phone call, just ask yourself, what do I want to see come out of this more than anything? Do I want to be seen as right? Do I want to be impressive? Do I want a resolution? Do I want to grind them into dust? So we use mindfulness just to see. And it's said that if you do something like cultivate loving kindness, if you do loving kindness meditation, the arena of your psyche that will transform is the motivational sphere. So, in other words, if you've largely been motivated by fear or disconnection in what you do or what you say, and you do that practice, you will find you are largely motivated by a sense of connection. And that is not determining what you do or say, but more like why, where you're coming from. What's your worldview? What's the, you know, your being guiding you through. And this is important in a couple of ways, one of which I'll talk about in a minute, but one way is that there's a kind of natural unfolding because of that. Um, you know, it's where we're coming from, what's motivating us. And it happens as a, it's a form of transformation. It's not, uh, it's not stylized. It's not studied. It's not, uh, like putting on a certain persona, like, oh, you know, I can't stand you, neighbor, but I did spend the weekend at Garrison Institute, and the title was Real Love, and, you know, I better act like I care at all about what you're saying. <laughs> you know, or my favorite example of this is the Dalai Lama, who, as far as I can tell, um, not haphazardly, I mean, he's the one who practices three or four hours a day, right? but through the cultivation of these states has come to a place where it just seems so natural, right? You don't, I don't get the sense watching him that he's talking to somebody thinking, oh, God, you're boring, but I am the Dalai Lama, <laughs> you know, and, like, I better act like I really care. Who cares, really? But, you know, it's not like that, you know. The shifts are very real, and so... You know, you're not in some situation where you're forcing or coercing. Intentionality does not mean force, right? And especially in this sense where you've cultivated a state, 
intentionally to experiment, to see um, what it's like. So, and the major, major reason we talk about love, love or loving kindness transforming our field of intention is because the next phase of an action uh, after the intention or motivation is the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the execution of it. You know, so that takes a different kind of mindfulness. That's like mindfulness in context. That's paying attention to the bigger picture of where you are. So I might, for example, out of a beautiful motive, want to give somebody this bell and striker, and I might stop and think, you know, there's only one. There are a lot of people in this room. Maybe, as far as I can tell, this is the kind of thing best done privately. Or it doesn't happen to be my bell. Maybe I better take care of that before I steal it, you know, and offer it to somebody else. Or, you know, it involves listening, it involves learning from past mistakes, it involves learning from feedback, it involves skills. Learning skills of communication, of expression, of action, like anybody who, for example, supervises someone else at work knows that to say to somebody you're an idiot is not a very useful piece of feedback, right? For one thing, it doesn't give that other person the information they might need should they want to make a change, right? Be specific, you know. There are all those skills of communication that we actually can learn. And the reason that um, that distinction is so important between the motivation and the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the act, which I sometimes call our best guess of the most appropriate way to act in a certain context at a certain time, is because mostly we tend to conflate those two. We sort of morph them together, and they're really not. They're obviously connected, but they're very distinct. And if we conflate the two, then that's the place where people get kind of squeamish, where they say, were I to come from a loving place, I could only say yes. I could only be nice. I could only give them all my money. I could only let them move into my apartment. I could only let them behave that way again and again. Whereas actually, if you see them realistically, accurately, as distinct, you realize, oh, you look at that. I might be coming from a genuinely loving, compassionate, caring place. And my best guess of the most skillful way to act in this moment in time, in this particular context, is really intense. It's fierce. It's saying no. It's having a strong boundary. It's not going to visit there. It's not inviting them into your home. It's really saying, you know, I can't tolerate that behavior, whatever it might be. You know, if we conflate the two, then that's a place where, and I've heard this so much, you know, I don't know about developing more love because then I will be like a doormat, you know, and I will be like uh, so acquiescent and, I'll let myself be hurt. I'll let other people be hurt or oppressed and I won't do anything about it. But it's just not so. This is like, you know, of course we'd call it tough love in current times, but it's uh, sometimes referred to in the tradition as kind of fierce compassion. You know, the motive is one thing and hopefully we are coming more and more. 
from a place of connection and understanding how valuable every life is and that we are connected to one another. And yet, when we decide what to do or what to say, it needs to be that kind of discernment and clarity to the best of our ability around circumstance of that moment, of that time. Otherwise, it's like love leads to the most narrow band of like action, you know, which is so uh, sentimental, you know, and kind of saccharine and meek, and which was my first book was called Loving Kindness, and that was my great fear. Uh, I thought uh, the one thing I don't want is anyone to call this sweet. And sure enough, when the blurbs came back, two people called it sweet, but they meant it in the nicest possible way. I was just like, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's something to look at when, you know, I kept coming back to what do we think love is? Do we think it's a force? Do we think it holds us back? Do we think it diminishes our power? Do we think it enhances our power? Um, and I think this model certainly helped me to make this kind of distinction, to realize that love doesn't consign us to this very narrow band of response, but it really opens up our world. Uh, our motivation is guided by elements more and more like uh, love or loving kindness and compassion. Our actions are guided more and more by discernment, by mindfulness, by clarity by paying attention, by learning, by learning skills. So uh, it's so critical a distinction that we do come back to it again and again and again. And almost everybody finds himself confused and uh, one response or one expression of the confusion is a, a very common question, you know, describing a situation and then saying, well, what's the loving thing to do? Mm. And I always say, sadly, as far as I know, there's no formula, you know. Uh, see where you're coming from. See what's motivating you. Look at the situation. What seems to you to be the most skillful? We make mistakes. We do the best we can. And hopefully we do learn also from those mistakes. But every time you think of love, if it starts to feel like, uh, you're going to be imprisoned in this like candy land. You know, everything's pink and and marshmallow-like. Uh, just see if you can remind yourself that it's a it's an expansive, open state. So when I you know I, I talked about last night, I talked about um, that guy and his dog in the first group that I did. One of the last groups that I did, um, although, you know, there'll be different kinds of groups once the book is uh, closer to coming out or once it comes out, but uh, somebody said something very interesting to me. This was a group I did in Barry, Mass., with, um, like, people who are staff members at the Insight Meditation Society and kind of local community members, and somebody said something to me after listening to me um, talk about love or loving kindness. They said, uh, all my life I have been taught and I've believed in a way that 
liking somebody is the ordinary thing. Like, of course we like people, but loving somebody, that's like a rare accomplishment. That's so, you know, unusual and rare and special. And he said, you're turning it around. You're saying, yeah, we can love everybody, but liking somebody, that's rare. You know, a lot of people we don't like, but can we love them in this particular sense of acknowledging a connection, realizing our lives have something to do with one another, that hatred and fear and our more ordinary responses uh, are familiar but tend to create so much suffering for ourselves that love doesn't mean giving in or giving up your own sense of principles or action or right and wrong. Um, he said, you know, you're turning it around, really. And I thought about it and I said, you're right, I am. We don't have to like people. I mean, that implies a lot of things, right? Maybe going out to dinner with them or tweeting with them or whatever. That would be a nice rule if you had to like somebody to tweet about them. Okay. <laughs> that would be a cool rule. Yeah. <laughs> it would help a lot. It would help a lot, actually. <laughs> um, it would help a lot. You know, but what is that sense of, of uh, connection, really? And uh, back to motivation for a moment. It's because of the crucial role of motivation in generosity, including generosity of the spirit. That's what some amount of cultivation... <coughs> I'm sorry, some amount of cultivation of love for yourself is really necessary, but doesn't have to be completely fulfilled. If you think about generosity <clears throat> being motivated <coughs> by so many different possibilities, maybe we give someone a gift because we like them. Maybe we give someone a gift because we feel obliged. Maybe we give someone a gift almost out of a sense of martyrdom, like we don't deserve to have anything, and therefore we give it away. Maybe we give someone a gift because we only feel okay about ourselves if we're being thanked in a public way. Maybe we give someone a gift, and they say this in the teachings, the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. And it doesn't have to be, we would almost say inner sufficiency. I guess we've downgraded, but uh, <laughs> that might be more realistic. Um, let's say inner abundance, just for the joy of saying it. Um, and I think we know this. I certainly have experienced this with many people, say, um, here in this country, or maybe uh, the most striking experience I had was probably in Burma where uh, when I went to practice there a bunch in the 80s, um, in those particular monasteries, they didn't even charge for room and board because everything you needed was provided by the people. Uh, 
in their honoring of generosity and of your practice, which they were so respectful of. So um, the culture is such in Burma, uh, where, for example, on your birthday, you don't expect to celebrate by getting gifts. You expect to celebrate by giving gifts. That's how you celebrate. So maybe it's your birthday, and you go off to the monastery, and you offer food for as many people as you can afford to feed. It's not, you don't make the food usually. You know, you offer the money and the cooks make the food. Um, or maybe your daughter's graduating from high school and you want to commemorate that event. So you go off to the monastery and you feed as many people as you can. Or somebody in your family dies and you want to honor their memory. and You go off to the monastery and you feed as many people as you can, and um, once, speaking of being Jewish, <laughs> there's, uh, the, the meals in Burma are very formal, like there's this processional, you come in, you bow to the Buddha, you sit down, people are sitting like maybe four people to a table on the floor, uh, and then food's served family style, so um, I sat down one day, and I looked at the food, and it, and it looked like I thought it was like this totally Jewish meal. I thought, God, that looks like white fish salad, and that looks like chicken soup, and I'm hallucinating, like something's gone really off in my meditation. And it turned out there was a tiny, tiny little Jewish community in Rangoon, and somebody had died, and so the family came and not only provided the money, but the recipes, and so it was like a Jewish meal um, in the middle of Rangoon. Uh, and the people would come when they could and watch you eat. And they were so poor. It was certainly then, it was one of the poorest countries in the world. And they were so happy at the chance to offer something, at, at being able to be a part of your practice, knowing that they were kind of fueling you to, to go back and practice with great sincerity and ardency. And... and the contrast between that and maybe people who have, by external measures, so much more, but don't have that inner feeling of even having enough, and it's so much harder to give, you can see why they say the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. And it's not just material generosity. We take that right into generosity of the spirit. Um, all those ways we feel... What we offer could never be enough. It's so negligible. It's so nothing, you know, that we don't count. And uh, caring about somebody doesn't fix the problem. Therefore, it means nothing. You know, we take those habits right into the expression of loving kindness. And so the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. That means there needs to be some amount of energy put in loving ourselves to restore, to replenish, to renew, to not have a sense of being so tired, fragmented, overcome, bleak within, uh, coming from that place of like, I've got to somehow get out of bed and, you know, do this. But having much more of that sense of renewal uh, resiliency inside. So it does not have to be perfect, really. Uh, at least I don't believe that. You know, many people say, I know I have to love myself really before I love 
others, and I don't think it's quite like that because that's that's a long term program. You know, I don't think you need to wait. Um, <coughs> but the whole quality of the generosity will continue to change and grow as we continue to renew and replenish and care about ourselves. And I'll also say that my experience of something like loving kindness practice is such that um, it's very hard to measure. (coughs) You can't really say, well, I loved myself for 14 minutes yesterday, you know. Today it'll be 18. There's an app now. It's what? There's an app now. There is. It tells you how many steps you took. I know, and what how much you love yourself. What percentage of the time you were kind to yourself. Uh, <laughs> is it my app? <laughs> I hope so. That'd be great. <laughs> that would be great. Um, but in contrast to that, it, it's not exactly like that, and sometimes it's more of a surprise, which I think is um, sort of the way it is. Something I always say about loving kindness practice is that uh, if you pursue it, if you actually practice it, and like all meditation practice, it doesn't bring its results from admiring it from afar <laughs> or thinking that's a great idea or next year when they do make that app, I'll start or I'll buy that book for my cousin, don't I get credit? Um, you know, it's doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and doing the practice even when it doesn't feel great or just doing it, not forever, because that would be crazy, you know, but for whatever period of time seems reasonable to you, it's doing it, and then assessing and evaluating, but the place to look if you're trying to decide whether to continue on with something is your life. It's not so much that, say, 20-minute period a day that you're putting into formal practice, because that may not reveal a lot of changes at all, but you'll be a different person where it counts, which is in your life. You know, like how are you with yourself when you've made a mistake? How are you meeting a stranger? How are you when your plane is four hours late because of a another plane and an incident involving a political figure who may not be your first choice? How are you? with all that. That's the place to look. And that doesn't mean you will be perfect, but you will see a couple of things. You'll see changes in the sense of connection, and you'll see quicker recovery when you do feel you've like fallen into some very old patterns or habits. It won't last nearly as long. And then you make the choice. Do I want to continue... Um, But sometimes it comes as kind of a surprise, like I didn't have that moment when I was sitting each day doing loving kindness where I could say, or I was on that retreat where I could say, now I love myself completely. I had the great breakthrough experience. It didn't happen that way. Mm. But over time, and that sort of very steady application of effort and intentionality, things shifted. I also say, as is true, that sometimes people recount that 
other people notice the changes in them before they notice the changes in themselves. And that's always, I think, very cute. You know, a lot of people say to me, I was going to stop meditating, and but nothing was happening. And then my kids came to me and they said, please don't stop. You're a lot better. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's that way. And then we see the changes in ourselves. And then maybe uh, over time we do see the changes in that formal dedicated period. But that's the least relevant. I mean, mm. how we live is, is the most important thing. Mm. Of all, so if you want to make the experiment and see what it's like to dwell more in the land of love or loving kindness, um, we can pursue that practice for sure. So, loving kindness um, is the ordinary translation for the word metta, M-E-T-T-A. I have had scholars say to me, "Just say love. You know, don't be so timid." Just say love. Um, love is a complicated term, isn't it? Uh, what do we mean when we talk about love? Uh, doesn't mean liking. We've already talked about that necessarily. Um, it doesn't mean a particular relationship. Like, I'm going to take you home. Um, it doesn't necessarily demand a certain kind of action, like saying yes. I would talk about a very profound sense of connection. We'll keep talking about this, of course, throughout the time here together. Profound doesn't mean liking, mm -hmm. but it's a recognition of a few things. Our lives do have something to do with one another that the construct of self and other and us and them held rigidly, um, it's just a construct. It's something manufactured. We live in a we world, not a you and me world, in truth. Mm. That's just how things actually are. And that underneath everything I do believe everybody wants to be happy, mm -hmm. that happy not in a pleased sense or just superficial sense, but I think we all do want a sense of belonging, a sense of uh, being a part of something, finding a home somewhere in this body, in this mind, in this world, being a part of something greater than a usually limited sense of self. I do believe that. And that the force of ignorance um, overrides a lot. We get a lot of messages about how to be happy and what we need in order to be happy and um, what kind of world it is that will really help us be happy. I sort of uh, uh, ruined somebody's week uh, not too long ago when I was teaching somewhere. It was like a six-day program, and in the beginning, the opening night, I said something like, isn't it a strange expression? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. But for a lot of us, that's, the, that's what we've been taught. You know, like, you're on your own. You know, you're weak if you have a sense of um, community. You're weaker if you have a sense of community. You need to, like, put everyone else down in order to feel better about yourself and... 
uh, it's a dog-eat-dog world. So this young woman uh, took the microphone and she said, my whole life I thought the expression was, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Like puppies, you know, D-O-G-G-I-E, D-O-G. You know, frolicking puppies and little puppy kisses. and It's a dog-eat-dog world. She said, now you're saying it's a dog-eat-dog world. Like... So I felt really bad about that. <laughs> uh, six days later, at the end of the program, she went back to the microphone and she said, I've decided I refuse to live in a dog-eat-dog world. I'm going to live in a dog-eat-dog world. <laughs> and I thought, okay, what worldview do we hold, right? And how malleable is it? And what really makes us happy? When we're that afraid and that in contention with everybody and that lonely and are we that happy? And remember, happiness in a sense is like inner abundance, which allows us to care for and be generous and share with others. It's not just being kind of pleased, like, oh, good, I'm so happy. Forget everyone else, right? That is the very makeup of um, that sense of inner abundance, which allows for generosity and so on. So we'll keep exploring the beliefs we hold and the um, convictions we have and how about love and uh, the experiences we've had, really, which are often in defiance of those beliefs. Um, many times, for example, I've, I've thought that culturally we often get the impression that love or kindness or generosity or gratitude... Um, are really like secondary virtues. Like if you can't be courageous and you can't be brilliant and you can't be wonderful, like, okay, be kind. It's nice, you know. It's not great, but it's good. But really, when we look, there is greatness there. If you look at a situation where someone was quite kind to you, you don't tend to think of them as like poor fool, Right? It's like, wow, that was really helpful. You believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. Or that was a boost. You know, thank goodness you were there. Right? So what's our actual experience within ourselves and between us of, of these qualities? <laughs> <laughs> 